Good morning. There comes a, a point in your life when you have to acknowledge that, you know, you're not the best at something, that other people are better. Um, no, that didn't happen like this week. I've known that for a while. But one of the times that happened for me was when I got married because I realized my wife is a much better athlete than I am. Much, much better. She played basketball in high school, played basketball in college. was really good. Um, I've played with her, and it's like, man, I'm, I'm glad I am bigger because I w- it would be bad. It's like at least I just have sheer bulk and size in my, in my advantage. She's a really good basketball player. And there's one time we were out at an amusement park um, with some people, and they have one of those three-point shooting games, uh, and we're like, ooh, trying to egg Bethany on to get her to do it. Now, if you know those amusement parks. They're like, they don't want to give stuff away, right? The rim's like a little too small, and the balls are super inflated, and, and they're, they're setting this up so that there's not enough time for you to, to really make all these shots. But still, we're really like, like, Bethany, come on, you, you, you're good, right? You should totally do it. And she didn't want to do it. Finally, I think we just were annoying enough that we got her to, to go in and do this. And I think she, pregnant with our first child, I think, and like, you know, wearing sandals and it's not like she's wearing basketball shoes, but she goes out there and doesn't do particularly well. And it's like, it's not surprising, right? Like she wasn't ready. She didn't really want to do it. It's totally rigged against you. But one of the things that I love about my wife so much is she is very competitive. And so she walks out and she's like, give me $5. Let's go. Give me $5. Because I got to do this again, right? Because she's like, I got to redeem myself. Like, I can't leave it at that. I got to go back in and, and redeem myself from that, from that poor effort. I mean, she didn't have to, but I think she felt like she needed to. And that's so true of us. That idea is very true of us. Don't we all feel like that sometimes, that we need to redeem ourselves? Because it's something we've done or something we've said or something we've experienced that we need to redeem ourselves. The idea of redemption hits us, I think, at a deep level. And there's a reason, like we see it in movies. It's in, in all these different kinds of movies that are about like someone going through this redemptive process and it's so moving and it connects with us. And we love those kind of stories. Like we, I, I think you see that a lot in sports. There's a reason why like every puff piece about the Olympics is about someone like overcoming adversity and, and triumphing against the odds and, and redeeming their story. It's, it's like there's one of two narratives at the Olympics. One is Michael Phelps winning 800 gold medals to the point that like, man, crushing swimming for a generation because they're like, well, I can't be that good. Or it's the story of someone who's, who's redeeming their, their, their pre- previous journey. One of my favorites is, is Dan Jansen, right? an Olympic hopeful who fell and, and didn't medal and was so devastated, came back the next Olympics and won and medaled. And it was, it's such a powerful story. We love that because it's like, oh, he redeemed his story. It's incredible. Matt Bush was the number one overall pick in the Major League Baseball Amateur Draft in 2004, was a cannot miss prospect. Can't miss prospect. And he made his Major League debut in 2016 with the Texas Rangers. The reason it took him 12 years is because he dealt for years with substance abuse and even spent time in jail before he managed to turn his life around, do a a tryout for the Texas Rangers in the parking lot of the halfway house where he was being rehabilitated to, and now he's in the major leagues. And we love those kind of stories. Those are meaningful stories. And it's appropriate that we talk about that idea of redemption today as we end our series on the book of Ruth that we're calling Promise. 
Because that's what Ruth is all about, is this idea of redemption. How God has moved in and through this story to redeem people. We can't really redeem ourselves, though we want to and though we try to. But Ruth paints a very different picture than maybe what we're used to. So I'm going to walk us through the end of this story, Ruth chapter 3 and 4. If you brought a Bible with you, you can break it open to Ruth chapter 3. If you were here last week, we talked about how Ruth met Boaz. She wandered into his field as she was gathering the leftover wheat. As that's what the, the poor did in that time. And she met this guy, Boaz, who was a distant relative. And they had, they had a connection. And in Ruth chapter 3, we pick up the story where Naomi, her mother-in-law, is concerned for her. And she says, I want to find you a permanent home. I want to let you know up front, there's a lot of cultural pieces to this story that we need to understand. It doesn't have to make sense to us as much as we need to understand those pieces so we can understand what it meant to the people in the story. So you don't have to agree with it. You don't even have to go like, I don't totally get that. That's okay. We just want to understand what it meant to them so we know what that then means to us. So Naomi wants to find a, what she says, a permanent home for her so she'll be provided for. Because at this time, at this period, culturally, that was how a single woman would be cared for. She couldn't go out and get a part-time job. She couldn't go out and work. She couldn't have a career. And so a family was, was the way she was cared for. That's the way that the family structure was set up. And so Naomi feels her own angst as, as by herself because her husband and her sons have died. And she feels that and doesn't want that for Ruth and wants to find her a permanent home. And so she says, listen, Boaz is going to be sleeping at the threshing floor. And that's where they would take grain and they'd break it down, and then throw it up into the, these would be on hilltops, they'd throw it in the wind, and the wind would blow away the chaff so they'd be left with the grain, sleeping at the threshing floor, possibly guarding uh, the harvest. So here's what you do. Dress up nice. Go down to the threshing floor. Wait till he falls asleep. And when he finally falls asleep, go and uncover his feet and lay there. And he'll tell you what to do. Okay, I want to tell you up front, you know, you might be wondering, what does that mean, uncover his feet? Like what, I, you know, gosh, I'm interested. Let me tell you, I don't know either. We don't really know. We don't really know. It had some significance. We don't really know what it is, but here's what I can tell you. It's not, it's not sexual. If some of you are thinking like, well, it sounds, I don't know, put on a little berry White maybe. First of all, no, what's wrong with you? No. But we're, we're imposing a sort of our cultural viewpoint on that. It's not sexual. And the way we know that is Ruth consistently talks about the character of Boaz and Ruth as being godly man, a godly man, a godly woman, as being worthy. So we know it's not that. We don't know exactly what that meant, though. But Ruth says, all right, I'm going to do it. So she goes and she falls asleep. And then it says around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. And he was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. It's like, yeah, understatement. Right? Boaz is laying there. All of a sudden, he's like, whoa, there's a woman here. Unexpected. And Ruth says to him, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Really, means she, she means the same language that Boaz said to her when we, in chapter 2 that we talked about last week. Spread your wings over me. It's this idea of protect me. Care for me. I want to be under your protection. It's the same imagery that Boaz prayed for her that she experiences as a child of God. You are my family redeemer because there's a concept here that's important. It's the, the idea of redeemer or kinsman redeemer. 
Land was very important in the Old Testament to the Israelites because the land was their, was their gift, was the, the sign of the promise from God that they had been a people that wandered for years and they'd been given the promised land and this was their home. And, and it was this picture of God's provision for them that they're in this land. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, it's, it's talked about as a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of, of goodness. And so the land mattered. And so in the Old Testament, there was law set up that if you got into major financial trouble and you had to sell your land, then your closest family member was to buy the land back for you so it went back to you. What God was trying to prevent was accumulation of wealth and land by one or two or a handful of people at the expense of everyone else. And he wanted every, every family, every clan to have their connection to the promise, their connection to what God had done for them. And so your family was to buy the land back. In fact, if your family couldn't, this year, this, this t- period would come up called the year of Jubilee, which it would automatically revert back to you. The land mattered. And so here, that's the role that Boaz is playing. You're, Ruth is saying, you're my kinsman redeemer. You're a distant relative. Rescue us. Rescue us. And Boaz says, he's deeply honored we know that Boaz, he's, we don't know how old he is, but he's not a young guy because he says, you've done an incredibly meaningful thing for me. He says, you've not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor, but you've come to me. He says, don't, don't worry about anything. I will do what's necessary. There was someone who has a claim that is before mine and I'll go to him, but if he does not, I will do it. He says, I love this. If he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, which is his way of making a solemn vow, I will redeem you myself. So the next morning, Boaz goes to the city gate, which is where business was conducted. And he sees this other redeemer and he says, hey, will you redeem Naomi's land from, you know who Naomi is, will you redeem Naomi's land? You have the, the first claim. And the man says, all right, yeah, I'll redeem it. That's, yeah, I'm in. And then Boaz, it's like, I, it almost feels like he's playing this as like his trump card because he, get, he says, okay, of course, if you purchase the land from Naomi, that means you have to marry Ruth, you know, the Moabite widow. And that's where the guy goes, uh, uh, uh you know what? I'm good. I'm good. I, I, no thanks. No thanks. Maybe because she's a foreigner. She's a, a, from Moab, as we talked about before, and that they're not, they're an outsiders and outcasts in society, but also because this, he's going to have to give up something to do this because the first child of this marriage would be in Ruth's dead husband's name to continue on his line and continue on his presence in the land. Again, we look at that and go, that's kind of weird. I don't know that I totally get that, but that's how they did that because God wanted to give them an opportunity for this, these lines to continue. That mattered to people a lot. And he's like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I can't redeem it because this might endanger my own estate. All right, it's yours. It's all you. It's all you. And so Boaz gladly does this. He says, I'll do it. And I will take Ruth to be my wife. And he says, this way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband to inherit the family property here in this hometown. He, he acknowledges too, this is gonna cost me something, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And they get married and they have a child and that child's name is Obad and Obad has a son named Jesse and Jesse has a son named David, the great king of Israel. And we see this, this purposeful movement 
and the end of this story of including Ruth in a much, much larger story than her own. At first, it seems like Ruth is just this little thing, but the connection to the rest of the Old Testament, the, the connection to the Bible is huge, and it's all at the end through David. There's a couple things that we want to take away from this when we talk about what it means to be redeemed. That's a big word. It's a big word. It means to buy back. It means to, to free by payment of a, of a ransom, by, by a cost, right? It's, it's to rescue. It's an incredible word. I love the word redeem. It is powerful. And there's three ways we're going to look at that and, and, and what happens. The first is the people in this story, that they're redeemed by love. They're redeemed by love. One of the things that we can understand from this, this story, this, these chapters, is that there is affection between Boaz and Ruth. That I, I think that Boaz is redeeming her out of love, not just for the Lord and what God has called him to do, but also out of love for Ruth and Ruth doing the same. There was a closer kinsman. Why didn't Naomi and Ruth go to him? Why didn't they beg him? There was some connection with Ruth. And Boaz says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step into your story. I'm going to rescue you out of love for the Lord and out of faithfulness and out of love, I think, for Ruth. He's re he redeemed her by love. We see that Naomi experiences some of that love as well, not from Boaz, but in a different way. In Ruth chapter 1, if you remember, Naomi comes back frustrated and angry. And we see it in chapter 1. The women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. He's brought me back empty. But look what happens in chapter 4 at the end of the story. It comes full circle. It says, then the women said to Naomi, right? And that mirrors what, what happened in chapter 1. Then the women said to Naomi, something different this time. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Seven sons is significant. Seven is the number of fullness, of completion. And, so se and sons are a good thing in this culture. And so seven sons, it, that's a huge thing for Ruth to be better than seven sons. But look at that, right? Naomi starts by saying, I am empty, God has forgotten me. God doesn't love me. And now it ends with women saying to, 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 to Naomi, look how much God loves you. You say you were empty, but now your soul is being restored. You are being nourished. God loves his people and his redemption, his, his movement to redeem them shows that. And it's true for us too, that God loves us. God loves us deeply. God loves us more than we can understand. That we have a hard time with, some, with that sometimes. We don't love perfectly. How could we possibly understand God loving us perfectly? Surely there's conditions. Surely there, there's qualifications to it. But God loves us perfectly. And God says, I don't love you because of who you are, or what you've done. I love you because I made you. God loves us. And he moves towards us that we might understand and experience that love. That idea of redemption hits us. It resonates with us. We all want that for ourselves. We want to be loved that way. Whether or not we'd acknowledge it, we want to be loved that way. And stories of redemption, I think, linger in us because they provide hope. They allow us to view life 
Rather than a series of failures, they allow us to view life as something that is hopeful. We can move past our, our wrongs. We can move past our hurts that there is a better future. We can see how large God is. We can see how vast his power is when we look at stories of redemption. So we see God work in, in pain and hurt. We see God work in the ugly moments and bring something beautiful out of it. We can't really redeem ourselves that we're drawn to that idea because we want to control and create our own world, but God redeems us for us. We can't really redeem ourselves, but we don't really have to. Second thing that we take away about this idea of redemption is we're redeemed at a cost. Redeemed at a cost. The first redeemer had the opportunity to step in and he didn't want to because he was very aware of the cost. He knew what it would cost him. He said, I, I don't want any part of that. And so Boaz stepped in. He's an older man. Who knows if he will have kids? And here's an opportunity in his older age to have children, to have a son to carry on his line. And yet he still says, I'm willing to give up part of what I have. I'm willing to give up my rights. I'm willing to even give up my first son in order to redeem Ruth. There's a real cost to this. And yet he does it anyway. He does it anyway. I was, uh, several years ago, I uh, took a small group of freshman guys to Dave and Buster's. If you know what Dave and Buster's is, it's like a Chuck E. Cheese, only it's for everyone over the age of like 12. It's like adults, like, you know, it's older kids and, and you know, yeah, I like it too. Um, so I thought it'd be fun, you know, we go and it's like, a, I don't know, I always have opportunities to like play video games as an adult and not, you know, feel bad. So here we go, we get a bunch of guys, we play in these like eight person racing games. It'd be fun, like it'd be fun to do that. Only we get there and the only thing my guys care about is going to this game, uh, it's called Big Bass Wheel and it looks like this because they want tickets, they want tickets. That's what they want. Like, they just want to do tickets. And they're spinning there. They got the jackpot at one point. Like, they just, that's all they want. But they don't, hang on one second. They don't want these kind of tickets. Like, this is just, these are small potatoes. They really want this. Like, this is what they're looking for. They want this kind of stuff. They want to make it rain tickets. Like, they, they want, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in for a handful. Like, I want so many, my eyes bleed. Like, and it's baffling because it's like, why? Guys, if you are able to buy the Xbox in, that's in that little store, it, it's going to cost you the equivalent of like $7,000. What, what in the world would you possibly want? Because like, look at this. They're just, it's paper, right? There's not a whole lot of worth in, in this. They're just these little paper pieces. They have worth because Dave and Buster's has decided, all right, I tell you what. Uh, if you give us these, we'll give you something else, right? They don't want this. They don't want the tickets. They want the prize. That's what they want. They want the prize. They want the prize. Now, they didn't, my, these guys didn't want teddy bears. They wanted, I, each of them walked away with, I'm not exaggerating, a one pound gummy bear that they're probably still digesting. But they wanted the prize, because the tickets doesn't really have any worth, right? It, it only has worth because the store has decided it has worth. What we can do is exchange the ticket for something so much greater. That's redemption. 
that we give God our hurt, we give God our pain, we give God our baggage, we give God our junk, our garbage, we give God that stuff and he gives us back something beautiful. Something we could not buy on our own, something that we could not earn on our own. God takes that stuff and gives us something beautiful. He takes our hurt and he gives us something beautiful in exchange. And it costs. It just doesn't cost us. Because Jesus came to pay that cost for us. I love how Titus says it. It's Titus 2, it's this great verse. It says, he gave his life, Jesus gave his life to free us. And it really means redeem, to redeem us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Jesus gave his life to redeem us. And I grew up around the church, and so I've known that you know, most of my life. But what hit me differently when I had children, what hit me differently when my son was born, was that it didn't just cost Jesus, it cost God too. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross, God had to send him knowing full well what would happen. God had to send him knowing that his wrath would be fully poured out on his son whom he loved, who had done nothing to deserve it. That our redemption has a cost, it cost Jesus and it cost God to make that possible. But they did it because they love us. And Jesus did it out of obedience. Redemption has a cost. The last thing that we look at when it comes to redemption, to the idea of being redeemed, is that we are redeemed because he promised. We're redeemed because he said he would. There's this powerful imagery at the end of Ruth, right? It works through, it gets to this genealogy and it lists these names and the name ends with David. And what that's doing is reminding us that a covenant had been made between God and his people, that God had made a promise to his people and that God would make a promise. This is foreshadowing to David, a covenant with David to say your line will be, will be king forever. Your line will sit on the throne forever. And he wasn't saying that you'll always have a, a grand, grand, great, 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 great grandson that's sitting on the literal throne of Israel. What he's saying is that you, your descendant will be the forever redeemer, will be the forever king. Because what we know from the Bible, if you fast forward to Matthew 1, is that David is in the line of Jesus. That as this genealogy is fleshed out further, that it ends in Jesus. That Ruth didn't just give birth to a son and she wasn't just great, 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 whatever it was, grandmother to David. That Ruth is in Jesus' family. That God used a foreigner, an outcast, an outsider to be part of his family because he promised. The redemption of humanity is the central purpose of the Bible. That God shows us that he loves us and he moves towards people. He doesn't say, figure it out on your own. He says, I am moving towards you to rescue you, to buy you back, to take your baggage from you and give you something so much greater. There is no greater news than that. Like that is literally the greatest news I could possibly have for you is that truth that God loves us that much that he would move towards us that way. And I love how verse three says it. When Naomi's talking about Ruth, wanting to find her a permanent home, that's the purpose of redemption. And God wants that for us as well, that we would have a permanent home, a place where we could find safety and security, a place where we could be loved and cared for and nourished. God's family is our permanent home. That's what we were, where we were created to be. 
and we are redeemed and we are rescued out of our story, out of our situation in order to be delivered to our forever home, the perfect home. God sent Jesus to redeem us and not just us, but our story as well, our journey as well. Bethany and I had a friend several years ago who we got to know after a really difficult period in her life. She had gotten married and her marriage had fallen apart very quickly. Her husband had turned abusive and she desperately tried to save it to no avail. They ended up getting divorced and she was deeply wounded. That was one of the few men that she was comfortable being around because she carried deep scars. She'd been hurt very deeply. and She carried that pain with her. Eventually, she got involved in student ministry with us, and she had a, a young woman join her small group. And this young woman had, had a difficult life as well. She'd experienced abuse. And at that point, she didn't feel like anybody in her life understood her. But through this relationship, our friend was able to encourage her and speak truth to her and, and love her and eventually share her own story. And what God did is use that to help this young woman feel like someone for the first time in her life understood her pain. You know what God did there? He redeemed her story. That God said to our friend, you experienced this brutal pain and you carry these scars, but that is not the end result. That is not all there is. I am not done yet. And so God moved to say, I'm gonna make this beautiful, this period of your life that has been miserably hard that, that you carry with you. I'm gonna use that for something great. I'm not just gonna have you forget that. I'm gonna use that for my glory. I'm gonna use that in someone else's life. How incredibly powerful and hopeful. You want to get through hurt? You want to get through a difficult season? The point is not to forget it. The point is to allow God to use it so that something good comes out of it. That's hopeful. Redemption is possible. But it's not because of what we've done, but because of what has been done for us that God moves in our lives, in our stories, that God moves that we might be rescued from those things that, that weigh us down, that we might be rescued from that baggage we carry with us, that we might ultimately be set free. The Bible talks about this in a lot of different ways, in just some really, really, really cool ways. We see this picture of promise in Ruth 4, 17 where they say, the women say, you have a son, his name's Obed, and he's the grandfather of David, that God is keeping his promise to his people. But we see that fleshed out in even richer ways for us in the New Testament. In Ephesians, it says this, in him we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We see it, it talked about more in Galatians. But Christ has rescued us, or really redeemed us from the curse pronounced by the law, when he was hung on a cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. And then it, in Colossians 1, it says this, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He has redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the, into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. This is Jesus saying, your story is not done. I am not done with it. You are not done yet. I am not done with you. So what do we do with that? 
how do we experience that kind of redemption? How do we submit to that kind of redemption? I mean, that can be hard because it's ultimately humbling. Re- experiencing redemption, being redeemed by God is acknowledging at some point, I cannot do it on my own. I cannot rescue myself. I cannot save myself. We aren't in control, but we really want to be. What do we do? Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm not that bad. I mean, I know I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, right? What we're doing is putting ourselves in the place of God saying, I am setting my own standard. I am setting the, 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 the boundary line. I am setting the bar. And if I can cross my bar, then I'm fine. But that's just not true. And the irony with that is we spend energy and effort trying to pretend we're something we're not instead of just acknowledging who we are and receiving the redemption that's been promised. Because here's the thing, if we don't think we're sick, then we don't think we need a doctor. Maybe you're here and you say, I can't be redeemed. You don't know what I've done. I've gone too far. I've done stuff. I've got things in my past. You You don't know what that is. And you're right, I don't. You're right, I don't. But I don't need to know the specifics of it because what I can tell you is that we are not redeemed because of what we've done. We are redeemed because of what Jesus has done. And because of that, the no amount of bad we've done can separate us from God because God's love is even greater than that. How unintentionally arrogant to say that I can't be forgiven Because what we're saying is that God couldn't possibly love me that much. But I want you to hear me say, God loves you infinitely more than you could possibly imagine. That his love is so much greater than anything you've done. It it is but a blip on the radar. We cannot outsin the grace of God that God chases us down and drags us to himself. He redeems us. He rescues us by taking our ugliness and making it beautiful. And maybe some of you are thinking, that sounds good, but I got stuff I got to fix first. Like, I I need to get my life right. Like, I just got to figure some stuff out. And to you, I would say, you don't have to because we will never be able to. The point is not to say, I'm going to talk with God once I've got my life sorted out. The, The point is to say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I am a disaster of a person for the love. Please help me. Because God is saying, that's when he wants to meet us there. In our brokenness, in our most raw openness, that's when we are willing, which when we are able to understand and receive how deeply loved we are, that God is saying, stop trying to do it on your own. I've already done it for you. It's a powerful picture of hope. God has moved towards us to redeem us, to rescue us, to draw us out, to buy us back, to take our pain, to take our junk, to take our garbage, and to replace it with something beautiful. Have you experienced that? Have you? What gets in the way of that? What keeps you from, from experiencing that love? What keeps you from living in that love? It's hard. I get it. I'm super hard on myself, and I, and I can allow that to take over and lose sight of the fact that I have been redeemed, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of who God is and what he's done. I like his way a lot better. Redemption is possible. Have you experienced it? 